All right, here's one that we can do live. Okay. We're good? All right, so two guys were walking through a game park. They came across a lion that had not eaten for days. The lion starts chasing the two men, and they run as fast as they can. And the one guy, he starts getting tired, so he decides to say a prayer. Please turn this lion into a Christian, Lord. He looks to see if the lion is still chasing, and he sees the lion on its knees. Happy to see his prayer answered, he turns around and he heads toward the lion. As he comes closer to the lion, he hears it saying a prayer. Thank you, Lord, for the food I am about to receive. <laughs> I like that one. That's one of my favorites. Okay, so this is kind of going to be like story time today. We're going to have a lot of uh, scripture. We're actually at 1 Kings 15. And um, we've already gone through, you know, Rehoboam and Jeroboam and how they started setting up their kingdom. Open the door to idolatry. And it then begins this long succession of uh, kings that caused more and more problems as they went along. You know, and it's, it's really similar to the state of this country. Uh, when you read the original intent, how much God was involved and how the Founding Fathers believed in the inherent fallen nature of man, and they realized that a government was only going to be as good as the men in it. And so for that reason and understanding the inherent fallen nature, they put a lot of checks and balances to hopefully protect us from some of the things that we're seeing here. And it's like even in the church, if you look at the... Um, I guess you would say the chaining of the Word of God, where uh, before the Dark Ages, you know, you couldn't get a Bible. In fact, we learned how if you made a Bible, you would actually be put to death. I think what Tyndale was one of them, who was put to death for having a translation. And uh, the Bibles were literally chained to an altar. Uh, and I believe that was the era of the Catholic Church and the Crusades and dominant uh, religion there. But it caused the dark ages so wherever the word is absent from a society it creates a vacuum for darkness to fill and uh, so we're seeing it in our country and that's why it's so important for urgent education but even in churches today you know i got a hair right there a lot of people think that we pay the pastor to do the word part and we'll come and listen minus any of their own study and personal relationship so if you want to know why a society is jacked, it's usually an absence of the Word. Because, I mean, if you think about it, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God, is God, and He will always be God. And so we see this here uh, with the succession of kings uh, throughout Israel's history, which actually ended up in war. Uh, they were taken captive uh, by uh, Nebuchadnezzar. But we're going to start here in uh, 1 Kings 15, 1-8. Like I said, a lot of scripture. We're going to go through it pretty quick, but I wanted to pull out several keys. So it says, Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Ab Abijam, <laughs> that's a funny name, began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem, and his mother, mother's name was Maka, <laughs> the daughter of Abishalom. And he walked... <clears throat> Excuse me. And all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Uh, now this is a uh, Judah, so this would be Rehoboam's son, and it says, uh, "As the heart of David his father." Nevertheless, for David's sake, that's very important. The Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And he did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except for the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Now there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. The rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the king of Judah? And there was a war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And then Abijam slept with his parents, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. Now, obviously, I'm saying his name wrong. But in 2 Chronicles 13, uh, his name's uh, Abijah. 
And he reigned for three years in Jerusalem. And his mother's you know, name is also talked about there. But here's the, the army that was, or the battle that was happening. Uh, the army of Judah, when they went out to battle against Jeroboam, they had 400,000 men. Uh, and then Jeroboam, he had his 800,000. So what, two to one odds there. And, um, but you know, really, if you look in the Bible, it's not necessarily the number. <coughs> Jesus had his, what, 12. Um, Judas obviously fell. So they, um, what was the guy's name that they picked? I don't even remember. I kind of think he was like, he was picked, but Paul was kind of the one that was born out of time that to me was the 12th apostle that replaced Judas. But they pick another apostle and these men changed the entire world. It did not take a lot of them to do it. It's the same thing with uh, what Gideon, you know, the Lord made him go down from what, 3,000 or 30,000 to 300. Uh, so really it's not the numbers that are important. It's is God on your side. That's what's important. And so when, um, I'm just going to call him Abby, uh, stood up on Mount Zemaram, that is, in the hill country of Ephraim, he said, Hear me, O Jeroboam, and all Israel. And this is verse uh, 4 and 5 in Second Chronicles 13. Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Yet Jeroboam, a servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord, and certain worthless scoundrels gathered about him, and defied Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and irresolute and could not withstand him. Now, obviously, this is a different take on the chain of events. Okay, so we know that God told Jeroboam he was going to give him ten tribes. So I don't know why Abby is saying that Jeroboam rebelled against Solomon, which he did try to go after Solomon, so I'm sure there was some type of rebellion. But the record states that he was prophetically given those ten tribes. On the other side of it, Jeroboam is not confident in his call. And we learned that through different insecurities. He's obviously, they're fighting each other over this territory. And, I mean, if you think about it, every war could go back to a lack of identity and insecurity. You know? Because... The, the people that feel powerless seek to exert power. The people that are insecure seek to exert their superiority. You know, that, that's just how it works. Whatever people are feeling on the inside, they try to do the opposite on the outside. So we've got both kings, there's problems. And both kings are not following the Lord. And so it creates strife. And like the Bible says, where strife is there, Every evil thing is there. So strife is defined by selfish ambition. It's actually a partisan spirit where they'd go and get groups to be on their side. And so it's that thing. And you know, like if you go to the Rittenhouse trial and you look at the media, the more I hear these people, the more I realize that the greatest enemy to this country is the media. They are stoking division, and they're doing it on purpose. And so we've got to be aware, and I like how um, Steve Bannon says, signal, not noise. Make sure you have a very clear message. And so one of the things I thought was uh, brilliant is uh, one lady said, actually, we as a country are not as divided as the media is trying to make us think. And that's important and to look for places of unity and common ground. And so it's important even among the people of God as well. So they obviously, they couldn't do it. Uh, they have different takes on the entire situation. You, know, you can watch the same video and get different perspectives from everybody in the room. So in verse eight, it says, and now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hand of the sons of David, because you're a great multitude and have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made for you, uh, made you for gods. Have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made priests for yourselves like the people of other lands? Whoever comes from ordination with a young bull or seven rams because a priest 
of what are not God's. But as for us, the Lord is our God. We have not forsaken Him. We have priests ministering to the Lord who are sons of Aaron and Levites for their service. They offer to the Lord every morning and every evening burnt offerings and incense of sweet spices. Set out the showbread on the table of pure gold and care for the golden lampstand that its lamps may burn for evening, every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but you've forsaken him. Because, behold, God is with us at our head, and his priests with their battle trumpets to sound the call to battle against you, O sons of Israel. Do not fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers. You cannot succeed. Okay, what is he basing his idea or perceived victory on? Did y'all notice anything in that passage? Any thoughts? Um, that they're fighting against the Lord as far as what he wants to do. Okay. Anything else? They're confident in the correctness. The correctness of what? Well, I would say obedience, but it's actually back to um, what they've been written in the law to do. So he is basing, I don't know if y'all noticed, he is basing their success on their religious system as being superior to Jeroboam's, not the presence of God. Yeah, so they're going by the law, and they're, they're correct. Their religious system is definitely the one that was God-ordained. But no battle is ever won by how religious you are. Battles are won by the fact, is God with you? Okay? So we see this weird, and I'm going to show you why this is so ridiculous in a second, but we see this establishment of we follow the law correctly, you don't. So you can go all the way to the Samaritan woman. We worship on this mountain, you guys worship over here, which is correct. This is the ancient argument that she brought up to Jesus that started with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. It's the same thing with denominations. We don't believe in tongues. We believe in tongues. We think everything died with the apostle. Well, we know that they didn't, that actually healing still exists. All of this stuff has served to divide us. So we don't base Christianity on whether God is with you. We base Christianity whether we have the correct uh, worship of Him based on what we believe and don't believe, which is the dumbest thing that you can do. Look at this. You want to know how the early church judged whether a person was born again? It's in Mark 16. And it uh, starts in verse 14. Mark 16, 14. This is not in your notes. It says, Hanji, you know what I'm about to say? Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. That word rebuked means he chewed them up one side and down the other. This was not no simple, you sat down, okay, I want to commend you for what you've done good, but we need to deal with this problem. No, he walked into that room and he said, what is wrong with you? Why did you not believe? I told you. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't no nice little pat on the back and then a spanking and then another pat on the back. Because for him, their unbelief was a hardness of heart because they did not believe that he said, I will be raised from the dead in three days. And then when they had the witnesses come to them and say, we saw him, they wouldn't believe him. It's kind of like, you know, if you hear someone that's a legitimate miracle, they have, you know, they have the proof, they have witnesses, and then people are like, well, I don't know. Unless I see it. I what do you mean you don't know? If they're coming, if, if, like Mike says, if I tell you it's Easter, paint those eggs. If someone comes to you and they share their healing testimony, and there are, especially are people around them saying, yeah, I remember that. What the only thing that can prevent you from believing that person was healed with witnesses is unbelief. 
Now, you can be skeptical because there are people that lie. But seriously, I would rather fall on the side of believing that God did a miracle than having a heart of unbelief and not believing, right? So that was the first thing. So he chews them out. And then he says, uh, after that stinging rebuke, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues, which that obliterates that whole we don't believe in tongues crap right there. And then it says, and they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So let's stop right there. Okay, signs that you are a believer include casting out demons, speaking in new tongues. What is this picking up serpents? Here's a biblical example. Paul goes to get wood. A serpent attaches itself to his hand. He shakes it off. It's a poisonous serpent, and the people of Crete are like... You're dead. Yeah. You're dead. Wait for him to die. Yeah. yeah, and they think he's cursed of God, right? Which most Christians would be like, oh, they must have done something wrong. That's not why they got bit by a snake. And instead, he shakes it off, and now they're like, he's a God. <laughs> you know, so it's from one extreme to the other, he's like, no, 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 that's Jesus. He knew that if he even accidentally took up a serpent, he could shake it off and he would be fine. Uh, it, drinking anything deadly. Me and Mommy's knows what that's about. Yeah. We were poisoned once, believe it or not, yeah. and we did not die. And then it will not hurt them, and they will heal the sick. That word recover is where we get the word therapy. Okay? So it's where you will pray for someone. You don't need to be concerned when you lay hands on whether they have an immediate manifestation. Now, our job is to make sure that, you know, where are you at as far as pain? One, you know, to Tim, you know, where are you at? Well, I was a nine. Now I'm a five. Okay, very good. We'll pray one more time. Pray again. Where are you at now? Well, I'm a two. Very good. You're healed. You know, don't worry about it. Any symptoms after this are counterfeit, right? So that's our responsibility. But we cannot gauge whether someone was healed if they see an immediate manifestation right then because of the word therapy. If you look in the original Greek, it's over time. It's different from the gift of working of miracles. Working of miracles are immediate. Okay? Now, how many Christians do you know they have never cast a demon out. Lots of them. Never healed anybody. Well, not Christians, huh? <laughs> so you've got this. This right here was he was telling them, This is how you'll know those who are mine. The supernatural power of God. Did y'all notice that? So they had to go by that, especially back in that day, because they could have been killed if they let somebody in that was an infiltrator. Guess what? They were going to be turned in. The Romans were going to find them. And more than likely, they were going to die a horrible death. Because a lot of the Christians that got born again at that time got born again during the time of Nero, who liked to use their bodies as torches to light up the Apian Way. Okay? So that is the qualification of a Christian. So if you're a Christian and you don't have these qualifications, you probably need to make sure and then get baptized. Is he talking about water baptism? No, well, a little bit. it might include all of them because there's many baptisms according to uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, right? But we are commanded to get spirit-filled. It is a command. Yeah. It is not an option. And you are not spirit-filled when you get born again. You're spirit-filled when you ask for the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, do not leave Jerusalem until you have the promise that is from the Father. That promise was promised to Abraham. You have to be spirit-filled and filled with power. Then you can go out, right? Right. So those are the qualifications. Then it says in verse 19, So then the Lord Jesus, after He had spoken with them, was taken up into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them 
and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. And so signs should accompany the message. In fact, as a Christian, if you're listening to a message, number one, you've got to understand, if a person is preaching Jesus, okay, that's what's important. There's a lot of preaching going on out there. It ain't preaching Jesus. Jesus is a person. If you are preaching Jesus, as I am right now, there is a literal spiritual impartation that you can take hold of. And if you believe that, and the word is being preached, which is Jesus Christ, Jeremiah said he sent his word and healed them. You can literally take your healing by hearing Jesus Christ preach and saying, you sent your word, I take it, I am healed. And what's even better, I don't even have to preach a message about healing. Any message that is preaching Jesus, you take your healing right there. Isn't that amazing? So you have to understand that it is not religious structure or form that determines if you're on God's side. What determines if you're on God's side and if you belong to Him is can you work miracles. That's what that means. Okay? So that's very important. And believe me, we're going to get to a point, guys, where we're going to have to go back to that as a standard. In fact, that should be the standard of every church. Here's another one. You know, a lot of Christians get on this tongues thing, you know, that you have to speak in tongues about. Okay. It's definitely a sign that you belong. However, Paul, yeah, Paul, obviously there were some that had not yet received their tongue. Because he said, I wish all of you spoke in tongues. It's a standard that we, it's like the gold standard. We need to get back to that. However, I've met several Christians that are not following God that have already received their tongue, and they can pray in tongue for, tongues for hours a day. Yet their fruit is lacking. Okay? So here's the thing. When you look at the baptism of the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Acts, and even when Mary, the Spirit came upon her, and then when Elizabeth uh, met her, the Holy Spirit, you know, she was moved by Him, what they do? They began prophesying. So a couple things that occur when you get Spirit-filled is you're able to prophesy and you're able to speak in tongues. So those are a couple other things that are important. If you have God in you, you should be able to prophesy. It is not relegated to a prophet only. You may all prophesy one by one and then do it so that you can practice and get better at it, right? So these are supernatural things that are evidence that Holy Spirit is in you. However, don't take your lack of being able to pray in tongues right now as a condemnation. Just keep going for it. Keep practicing. Keep opening up your mouth. Keep, you know, in your private time. Study why is it important to speak in tongues. So here we have this entire situation where it's almost like a he said, she said in divorce court. So we've got one, they think they're right because they have the law, they have the temple, they have the priests of Aaron. You have the other one that he's got an insecurity problem because he doesn't have all that. So he's created this entire system Verse 13, Jeroboam had sent an ambush around to come upon them from behind. Thus his troops were in front of Judah, and the ambush was behind them. And when Judah looked, behold, the battle was in front, and the battle was behind. Now they cried to the Lord, and the priests blew the trumpets. Then the men of Judah raised the battle shout. And when, is, and when the men of Judah shouted, God defeated Jeroboam and all Israel before Abi and Judah. Okay, so here, they really had nothing to do with it. The only reason they won that battle is because they trusted God. Also, they released a sound. Remember, we talked about that, I believe, last week. There is a war over the sound. And so they had the correct sound. The walls of Jericho fell with the sound. This battle was won by a sound. Judah means praise. Okay? So, the praise of God. God is enthroned on the praises of His people. So, what happened? It wasn't the religious system that won this battle. It is they released a sound that enthroned God. He then fought their battle for them. Okay? So, the presence of God showed up. 
So uh, the men of Israel fled before Judah, and God gave them into their hand. Abi and his people struck them with great force. So there fell slain of Israel 500,000 men. So they only had 300,000 left. Thus the men of Israel were subdued at that time, and the men of Judah prevailed, because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers. And Abi pursued Jeroboam, took cities from him, Bethel with its villages, Jeshana with its villages, and Ephron with its villages. Jeroboam did not recover his power in the days of Abi, and the Lord struck him down, and he died. But Abi grew mighty, and he took, here we go again, 14 wives and had 22 sons and 16 daughters. The rest of the acts of Abi, his ways and his sayings, are written in the story of the prophet Edo. <laughs> I love that name, Edo. Now, here's what's crazy. This is what I find ironic. This is the point I was trying to get to on this whole system thing. Both kingdoms were in idolatry. Both of them. So he's like, hey, we got the temple, we got all this. They were in just as much idolatry as Jeroboam. Well, actually, it was probably not as much as Jeroboam, but they were fast catching up. So, you know, it's like this religious argument. You've, we've got the true priesthood. You've got the fake priesthood. But no one stopped to assess their own spiritual state. I'm sure they thought that God showed up because they were the ones that were righteous. It, it kind of kept evolving to where you've got the uh, Pharisees. Mm -hmm. And they measured their righteousness against this carpenter from Nazareth and decided that he was of the devil and they were of God. That's why religious arguments never work. That's why Paul said, avoid those. Don't even, you don't even need to get into them. Yep. Okay? And so if our walk, and here's one of the first keys, is reduced to, I'm right with God because I believe in this or I'm part of this denomination or go to this church or do these things, we're already wrong. It's not about religion or religiosity. It's about relationship that avoids hurting his heart at all costs. <coughs> okay, but we see that God definitely gave Jeroboam's armies into Judah's hands, reduce his power. But both of them were serving false gods. Make sure that the light that is in you is truly light, not darkness. Okay, now back to our 1 Kings 15 text. Now we've got Asa. So in verse 9... It says, in the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah, and he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Maka, the daughter of Abishalom. And Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land, and he removed all the idols that his fathers had made. He also removed Maka, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places, here we go again, were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days. And he brought into the house of the Lord the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver and gold and vessels. Okay. The male cult prostitutes were perverse men or homosexuals. Okay, so that, that's what that means in the original language. So, this is crazy, guys. I mean, you know, you've got Jeroboam with his idolatry. I don't remember reading of male cult prostitutes. Maybe they had them in the kingdom of Israel. But here we've got, in the kingdom of Judah, male prostitutes, homosexuals. So, it was linked to obviously idolatry and idol worship he removed his mother because of her idolatry but of course we still have those darn high places now second chronicles 15 reveals more details about him but what i love about it is he didn't have war for 35 years of his reign so we see another period of peace and rest for the people of judah and uh and that's because they were faithful to god he only asked for loyalty. You know that scripture where it says his R, his R's, his eyes search back and forth across the earth for those whose hearts are loyal to him. It's loyal love. That that's the original language. He's looking for loyal 
love in the hearts of his people, if you have that, you have peace. If you start worshiping other idols, you know, yourself, activities, actual gods, even your religion, your pastor, you're not going to have peace. And really, I guess, you know, we definitely have, like BLM, they have their idols they worship, um, you know, even in Methodist churches. But, you know, really idolatry is any time you put your will above God's. That really is idolatry. And uh, so that would be maybe a modern form of it for us to be aware of. Okay, now in 2 Chronicles, talking about Asa, it says he took away the foreign altars, the high, um, the high places, he broke down the pillars, cut down the ashram, commanded Judah to seek the Lord, etc., etc. He took out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the incense altars. The kingdom had rest under him. He built fortified cities in Judah, for the land had rest. He had no war in those years, for the uh, Lord gave him peace. And then he said to Judah, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers and gates and bars. The land is still ours because we've sought the Lord our God. We have sought him and he's given us peace. And so they went ahead and built more cities, etc. and prospered. So we know he got rid of some high places, but not all of them according to 1 Kings 15. Okay, now at some point in Asa's reign, <clears throat> this dude named Zerah, he was an Ethiopian, he came out against them with, get this, one million men. Then they had 300 chariots. Chariots back in the day were like tanks today. You know, my dad, he was a Marine. And uh, <laughs> when he was in, I don't know if it was basic training or more specialized training, but he said, having those tanks coming towards you is one of the scariest things that you will ever see. And he made sure and learned how to use whatever weapon it is that will stop a tank very well. Because <laughs> he, he was going to go into you know, infantry. Yeah, it's called a law. L-A-W. L-A-W? Really? Range and a tank weapon. Huh. Fired off the shoulder. It's only about this long. Oh, yeah. But the rocket that comes out. Oh, yeah. He, yeah. Bye-bye. He learned how to use that. He said, it is scary. You know, and then later, he didn't, you know, he didn't get to go to infantry because of a car wreck. But that's that's what chariots were so back then. if you live then. by that law, you can survive. <laughs> okay, so we've got these 300 chariots. Asa went out to battle, and he prayed for God to help them, and he declared their reliance. In 2 Chronicles 14, it says, verses 12 through 15, So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and they fled. Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar, and the Ethiopians fell until none remained alive, for they were broken before the Lord and his army. The men of Judah carried away very much spoil, and they attacked all the cities around Gerar, for the fear of the Lord was upon them. They plundered all the cities, for there was much plunder in them, and they struck down the tents of those who had livestock and carried away sheep in abundance and camels. Then they returned to Jerusalem. So they, the, this attack by their enemies actually worked in their favor. They came out with more uh, spoils. Now this shows me the difference between peace from our enemy and the Lord and an absolute victory over any attacks he might attempt. Whether protected or resisting the enemy, we live in war from a place of victory. This is very important to understand. The main thing to avoid is to avoid unnecessary open doors due to disobedience, okay? So I always look for three things. Uh, I look for offense, pride, and disobedience if I'm attacked. Sometimes you're just attacked because the enemy is going to attack you. If none of that's there, then you, if it is, just repent. If it's not, the battle's already won. It's a setup. It's like the, the Lord put a hook in the enemy's nose because it's a guarantee that whatever you come out with at the end is going to be much more that you entered into at the beginning of the battle, okay? So that's that's neat. He's, he's going to be defeated. Now you guys start looking for the spoils. So I like that story. Okay, now we're going to finish up with the role of the prophet. Um, many have reduced him, uh, or the role of a prophet, he or she, to delivering personal prophetic words. Prophet is uh, all of actually the fivefold are governmental roles, and so a prophet actually has a jurisdiction or a sphere usually. So you might have a prophet to nations, you might have a prophet to a nation or a city or a leader. 
lot of times you might have profits to that. <clears throat> and so they can give personal words, but they are anointed to bring the word of God and get people out of a rut. One of the most misunderstood ways prophets operate in today's uh, uh, ecclesia is actually as preachers. So a lot of times preachers are operating in a prophetic teaching. And uh, so that's one of the ways you might see them. Uh, they deliver messages that instruct. They're also designed to, quote, read the mail of those listening, which is a sign they're on the right track and the correction that is needed to reach a goal. The hearer's responsibility is to respond accordingly. Okay, now, still in 2 Chronicles 15, uh, and I know I've got a lot of scripture, but to me, the best thing is to read it and then just pull out some, you know, keys. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Odin. And he went out to meet Asa, and he said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you're with him. Okay, so very important. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. In those times there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in, for great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the land. They were broken in pieces, nation was crushed by nation, and city by city, for God troubled them with every sort of distress. But you, take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your heart will be, or your work will be rewarded. As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Odin, he took courage, and he put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin, and from the cities that he had taken in the country of Ephraim. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah, Judah and Benjamin and from those Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who were residing with them. For great numbers had deserted to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. They were gathered at Jerusalem in the third month of the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa. And they sacrificed the Lord on that day from the spoil that they had brought, seven hundred oxen, seven thousand sheep. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul. This is the backstory to why Asa was such a good king. Okay, so a prophet goes to him and he's basically like, okay, here's the deal. You've got two choices. If you seek the Lord, he'll be with you. And you'll have peace. You'll have rest. If you forsake the Lord... He's going to stir up trouble against you. Why? Because the desire is for you to turn back to Him. Like we've talked about, the, the greatest test is following God when times are good. Anybody will seek God when times are bad. That's why churches filled up after 9-11. People got scared. Fear motivating you to seek God is not the best. It's acceptable, but it's not the best. Faith in seeking God is the best, right? And so this word motivated Asa to enter into a covenant to seek the Lord. So the prophecy was to take courage. And so Asa did. He took courage and he did the thing that he was scared to do. And that was remove all the detestable idols out of the country. You know, he's faced with it. So it tells me his heart was tender. He wanted to do it, but he was scared. Kind of like Gideon. You know, it's like, hey, the first thing before you go deal with your nation is you better deal with the idol that's in your backyard. It didn't belong to him. It was his dad's, which is even more of an insult. So he goes to his dad's house. He cuts down his dad's idol. Now the whole town's like, what? And they're going to go fight against him. And the dad's like, hold up. If anyone should be mad here, it's me. It was my idol. But you know what? Something's going on here. We better not mess with it. When God is not required to intervene in a spectacular way if you don't first take that step. Okay? So he does what he needs to do. I'm sure it wasn't easy. And it might have sparked a war. I mean, and then he even tells his own mom, you're fired. You know, you can't be queen mother anymore because you're, you know, hoeing after idols. 
So I'm going to remove you as queen mother, right? And he was rewarded. Prophets give others courage to do the things they've been putting off due to fear. Okay, that's, that's another key. All right, wise in our own eyes. 2 Chronicles 16, 1 through 6. In the 36th year, so he's, he's reigned for 35 years, he's had peace, he's seen spectacular deliverance. In the reign of Asa, Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. So Asa took silver and gold from the treasures of the house of the Lord in the king's house, and he sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, there is a covenant between me and you as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I'm sending uh, to you some silver and gold. Gold, Go break your covenant with Basha, king of Israel, that he might withdraw from me. And Benadad listened to King Asa, and he sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel, and they conquered um, all those places. And when Basha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah, and he let his work cease. Then King Asa took all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah, its timber, with which Basha had been building. With them he built Geba and Mitzvah. Okay, that seems pretty smart. So, I'm a strategist. That's actually my top personality thing, right? Like, you got, you know, your executors, your managers, your um, uh, advocates, things like that. You know, we've all done that testing, right? I'm like, man, that's really smart. Like, when I look at that, you know? Hey, we had a treaty with you first. So, if you remove your power, your backing, and become on our side, it'll solve my problem. So the king's like, sure, no, no problem, we can do that. You're absolutely correct. Uh, it's like what we saw in Afghanistan. Everybody's like, well, we trained them for 20 years, and the minute we pull out, they just fall to pieces. Yeah, because we withdrew the Air Force. You have no army without air support, okay? So we betrayed them. We'll probably see terrorists come out of there, too. Now, here's the deal. Shrewd, very shrewd. But here's the thing. When you have a problem and you think that you see an answer that appears to be the answer, pause just for a second and say, Lord, is this the move I should make? Because we have a problem here. Uh, he was absolutely wrong. If you look back at David, the only time he got in trouble was when he did not inquire of the Lord and when he didn't deal with issues promptly and with justice. A key to success is to always possess an inquiring and humble heart. Don't think you know what you're doing. So here we have the thing. Verses 7 through 10. And at that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them to your hand. Remember, Ethiopia had a million men. For the eyes of the Lord, here it is, run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless or loyal toward him. That's what that means. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. Then Asa, who was angry with the seer, and he put him in stocks in prison, for he was in a rage with him because of this, and Asa, Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the time. What the heck? This is the prime example of beginning well and ending bad. I'm curious too. If he saw God deal with the Ethiopians and deal with the Libyans, why did he think he needed the Syrians? I'm confused. And remember, at this point, the Israelites were reduced to 300,000 men. It doesn't make any sense. So, the only thing I can think of is a lot of times when God gives you an assignment, you start out humble, of course. You're, you, you're in the stage of what's called conscious incompetence. You know that you don't know what you're doing. Okay? So, first, here's how it works. God tells you, I want you to do something. Oh, yay! 
you know, you're in the stage of unconscious incompetence. You don't yet know that you don't know what you're doing, right? Then, as time goes on, you're like, man, I really don't know what I'm doing. Correct. <laughs> so you're like in this, you know, obviously this dependence, this humility, you know, you need his help. Then you get to what's called uh, conscious competence. Now you're learning the ropes. Now you're kind of figuring things out. And then eventually you get to unconscious competence where you just do it without even thinking. Here's the key. you got to understand that when you get to that unconscious competence, you still have to rely on the Lord. You will never know everything. So if you get, like to this day, working with my clients, I am constantly, what do I need to do here? What, what's the answer? What's the plan? What, how can I help this person be successful? I've got the basics of I know how Facebook ads work. I know how social media works, etc., etc. But I live in a conscious awareness that there is no way I can be successful if God is not with me. And if God is not with me, my clients aren't going to be successful either because I'm going to be dumber than a sack full of hammers. Okay? Yes. I have a thought on this that situation right there when when Raymond was being built. Yeah. I'm sure it was they had enough people bringing the info. They're they're building something big. They're building something big. It's, it looks huge. It's the noise, bigger. the sound. It's getting bigger. Mm-hmm. Boom, boom, boom. Start so playing his he head. Started clicking in fear. I mean, yeah. And it goes. It probably goes all the way back to the twelve spies went out. Ten came back. Getting yeah. A negative report of what they saw. Eyeballs. Yeah. And ears. The two came back, oh, they saw it, but they said no. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter how big they are. It's yeah. Done. And, you know, fear, if we look over in, yeah, that's a really good point because we know that he had to take courage, right? The mm -hmm. prophet came to him and told him to take courage. He was in fear already. So he obviously struggled with fear, which I'm sure a lot of people do. Um... But there is a, I, okay, here it is. First uh, John 3, and let's say um, verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Okay? So remember we talked about that. Condemnation begins in the heart. That's why Jesus came to cleanse us from dead works. Because they condemn us, right? So if our heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God. Verse 22, And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Now we know His commandments are to love Him and love others as ourselves. But notice that a heart that does not condemn us produces the confidence so that we can ask, so that we can receive. So there's probably something going on in Ace's heart. His heart was condemned. So we've got the fear aspect. Maybe he started slipping a little bit. We don't know. But something was wrong to where he did not have the confidence, like you say, to trust the Lord, and it could have been the reports he, he heard. He could have said, oh, let him build it. Very good. I don't good. care how big it gets. It doesn't matter. Right. But he didn't do that. Right. He went actually to the very worst people he could have went to. Yes. That, would be, that was like going to Egypt. Went to the worst people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're still fighting over there. Man. Okay. Very good. Um... And, you know, there may have been some pride there as well. I don't know. Uh, but something undermined how he viewed God would respond to him in this time of need. He doubted that God would come to his rescue, or maybe he felt he didn't even need to ask for God's heart. I'm not sure. But we do know that this time, when the prophet came, there was no humility or repentance. Instead, he arrested the prophet in rage. Sometimes what happens is the private cost of ruling or becoming a leader in the kingdom actually creates a sense of entitlement from the leader. Many have no idea the personal and private cost to serve God's people and the hours of thank thankless labor that's involved. But to think that that entitles you to anything 
is pride. And it reveals a heart that's actually been serving him out of performance versus relationship. If you need thanks and recognition from those you serve, you are not living before an audience of one. It's nice, but you don't need it. It's obedience to the Lord. So the key to finishing well, other than love, of course, is humility. Humility, humility, humility. And it needs to be real humility because you have um, Saul. He's another example like Asa where he's called to be a king and he's like, me? My tribe? My tribe? We've been reduced to hardly anything because that whole incident of the concubine, you know, that got cut up in 12 pieces and all that stuff. And so his humility was actually insecurity so that when he had power, he became a despot and, you know, began to persecute David and stuff. So real humility is not self-deprecation. It's not, you know, where you're shaming yourself and you're not, you know, worthy. People say, well, I'm not worthy. Yeah, no one is. The reality is Jesus made us worthy. For you to say the opposite of who he says you are is a slap in his face. If he says it's Easter, paint those eggs. And actually he wouldn't because that's a worship of the goddess Ishtara. But, Ashtara. but anyway, it, you know. So the thing is, is that true humility is seen in you saying exactly what he is saying about you. And when people hear you doing that, they can call you prideful. They can say that you're arrogant. But that's not the case. In fact, I told a family member because self-deprecating and all that can be very um, strong for her. And I told her, I said, you know, actually, you need to be careful of that. And you need to be careful of viewing other people as being arrogant just because they say what God says they are. You need to be very careful of that because they did that with David. And David ended up killing, the, you know, the giant because he knew he could because God was with him. Okay? I think one of the hardest things to confront somebody about is their pride. It's already, it's already a bad situation because they have that pride. Mm hmm when they know somebody is coming against them in any given form, yeah. like a, a prophet or you know, somebody has a word from the Lord to say, yeah. or it might be just something quite common, somebody has something to say to help you, Yeah. that pride attacks them immediately. Yeah. Pride, you know, it can show itself and they're not going to listen because they already know everything, or it can be that sting where they feel they've done something wrong and instead of responding with humility, the pride is like a blanket. It's like a, an armor. Yeah. You know, and it there's protects going them. Be a, there's going to be something to come from because there's these, you call it a verbal attack, you can call it a ambush attack, surprise it, oh, a, a whole bunch of weird things. And you know, one pattern I've seen along that line when you study the Kings, because I know you study both books in depth, I love this stuff. is good. that it's like after they had great accomplishments for the Lord, no one could correct them. And it was a test. Because, like, you know, again, we've talked about Josiah over and over, and we'll get to him, where the Pharaoh told him, your God told me to fight the Assyrians. And he couldn't recognize God's voice in it. And it's because he's like, I'm the one that's brought awakening to this yeah, nation. Don't, don't it's like, who the heck are you? You know? So it is, it's like, Beware the greatest things that you've done. That is at the height where you can fall. And God will send a test to test your heart. To sh and He knows. He doesn't need to figure anything out. He's trying to reveal a heart that has grown prideful. That's what He's trying to do. I always think of the prophet with the donkey. Because the donkey spoke absolutely correctly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was not a donkey sound. That was a voice. Yeah. Coming. That was a miracle in itself. And the damage that's done by a leader like that. I mean, it's it's like a nuclear bomb. Uh, in fact, I'm mentoring a person that what happened at a church here in town has just absolutely devastated. Now, of course, the idea also is no leader should ever have such a position in your heart that if they fall, you fall too. That's just nonsense. But you also have to recognize and validate a leader falling is very damaging. And, and so it's like most of the time you see that toward the end of their service. You know, it's toward the end. And then all of a sudden they stumble and fall. 
So it is humility. And I had asked the Lord, I was like, Lord, you know, because you see this happen over and over. I'm like, what will prevent, you know, someone from living their whole life, you know, working uh, in your presence and your power, et cetera, et cetera. And then a fall at the end, like to me, that's the worst thing ever. And the reason it's the worst thing ever is not only the damage it causes to those around you and even a city, but it's like there to not hear well done and good, good and faithful servant would just to me be absolutely devastating. You know, your whole life and then you get before them and you know, you barely make it in by the skin of your teeth or you don't make it in at all. I'm sure you'll be happy if you make it in, but still that would just be horrible. And I was like, what will prevent me, a person, anyone, to you know not fall at the end? He said, humility. 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 Humility is an aspect of love. Love is correctable. It does not boast, right? No. I think a lot of churches are built with the glory of men, though. I do, not too. with the glory of the Lord. I do, too. I mean, that's a simple thought. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's their motive? Mm -hmm. And what's their ambition? Well, and, and a lot their... of times, you know, their motive is to do a work for the Lord, but then you get in the system. You know, it's like you get in this weird system of what success looks like and building, building, building. Yeah, and it's numbers. Um, it's like that dream that uh, Ken's former youth pastor had that I've shared about you know driving through a city and seeing some buildings were actually buildings but a lot of the buildings were made out of Legos. And when he told me the dream, I knew immediately that was a church. And you've got some where they've built what they think is this beautiful ministry work that's actually just a bunch of kids getting together and putting Legos together, and it's out of selfish ambition and all of that stuff. And then you have those that have actually built something lasting. But what was fascinating is when the shaking came, Immediately the Legos tumbled to the you know to the ground. They were gone. But the buildings themselves experienced a shaking, but they were able to withstand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on. Which COVID proved. Yeah. Yeah, what was it built upon? Faith or well the way it went. Yes. Yeah. Well, Father, we thank you so much for the word of God. We thank you that we can literally read back on uh, the word, on the stories of these rulers, some of them great, some of them not so great, and we can extract from them keys for life. That's just like 2 Corinthians, I believe, chapter 10 says, that these things were written for us as examples. And so, Father, we want to take these examples. We want to use them to, uh, you know, cooperate with Holy Spirit of anything that's in our heart that needs a correction, even being the slightest degree off on a, a, a vessel in the ocean, you'll never reach your destination. Same thing with driving. You can, if you miss that exit, you are not going to get to your destination. And so, Father, that's what I feel like these stories are for, is not to in any way say, I can't believe Asa did that, and I can't believe Rehoboam did that, my goodness. No, it's recognizing that we, too, can be that same person that we must consider ourselves lest we fall. And so I pray that this morning, whatever key it is from these stories that we needed, that we will take that and we will uh, uh, cooperate with Holy Spirit to deal with that issue in our hearts. We commit to that, Father, and we ask that you use these examples today to do just that. And Father, we thank you that we don't have to live by pride. There's no need for self-protection. You're our rear guard and our front guard. You're all around us like a fire. And we don't need to be in fear because if you're with us, we can do all things. And so we ask that it becomes very simple. You're with us. That's how we live. That's how we're protected. So I ask, Father, that this morning, as we give our tithes and offerings to you, we do so with a loyal heart. That's why we're giving to you this morning. It has nothing to do with any pressure or compulsion. It has nothing to do with the law. It has nothing to do that we're afraid that if we don't, then we're going to be attacked. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with the fact that you are the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And we honor you with the wealth you have given us the ability to gain. Because that confirms your covenant. Therefore, we're giving our part to confirm our side of the covenant with you as well. So we ask Jesus that you receive our tithes and offerings this morning. 
And we ask that you keep everyone safe as they tra travel back today. Again, we lift up Kathy and ask that you bless her. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.